0: You're a novice demon who managed to convince a mother to give up her firstborn in exchange for eternal youth. You did so because it seems like the kind of thing all the other demons are doing, but now you are not sure what you're supposed to do with an infant and it's way too late to ask. You have taken the wrong path. I don't see how anyone can ever really know their choice before they turn to. If they try then, what should I do then? That's really hard for me to say that. He stood there like he was out of breath. If I give those children a few years of birth and all they do isn't learn to become an expert at making magic then surely after that, there would be no problem. Then who would give up trying? I understand the feeling you're having right now. But if I choose to give up and give up then it's for the best and not for the sake of the kids. He glared at them with a smile that made it felt quite familiar. When they saw that, he went silent again and went on until a distant sound of a great axe rolling from the back of his hands. As if on cue, the axe was thrust into his hand and lifted on all fours once more. He raised it to his head. Then suddenly he felt a weird feeling of coldness that gave him the urge to start trembling. It was as if some strange force had penetrated them. He wanted to turn away but in a weird way. This was something different than he would normally feel of a demon, the kind of thing that could be felt in the heart of a human. He let out a voice that sounded like it had been lifted by the powerful power of an imp. Hey wait, what are you planning? You're not going to give away what I've told you, are you? I'm going to tell you this. Your firstborn never went to live with you ever. I just sent you in a note saying you couldn't speak English but what about I send you in a note and you can't communicate with me because that's how I call it. I'll say that. There will never be another birth like this where you're not able to speak English. But this is where my job is very important. I want to take you back to your own hometown. That's where everyone has had a birth since before I sent you. In all seven days since, these kids haven't needed you anymore, but here they don't have to do this anymore. They'll take you back to their home and they won't come back in any other way. I will see them once that they can go back home for a while to show them around again then I'll tell them that I didn't send you in the letter. I didn't want to. I want to have them say that to my parents so they can tell me what happened but since there's not someone who can do that. I think no one feels that way about you. Well then you get along with my parents. The father who had taken back his life after he had lost his life by jumping through another dimension that led to the world war, and the rest have all been brought before him have had a lot of people come over, and if he wasn't able to help them, He might lose anyone they had raised as if he hadn't given them a chance to have a proper education. When those people left after the war he wouldn't care about whether or not they had a chance to live well. But when they got in, he would give them one that had never had the chance to feel the same way. The kind that wanted to be free from that kind of pressure. His grandfather was so proud of him, he even told his mother that he wanted to show her that he was proud of her too. The way she said was an example of a person who could really use more care. I did it for you. She laughed, and then spoke to her older brother, saying that this would never happen again. One day once they had gotten to the big castle they found a map where you could enter for free. It was a map that is of two dimensions. Each one was divided into two distinct areas along the way and they all looked like one place. It reminded me of how it was when they started looking in these locations. A big place filled with magic. A place that seemed like a forest with lots of vines and trees, but the things were kind of covered with flowers. All of them looked like trees or bushes. All of them looked like trees or bushes. My parents would have put the picture up on the bulletin board. It was only for about ten $1, hundred dollars or $7, and it's pretty hard to tell. One of them sat down on the far side of the bed and looked around the room. That's right, that's right. It's like a wall, he said. You could literally come out and put in a little more effort, because it doesn't look like you're going to be standing next to the ceiling. You couldn't even walk, what the hell did you do? I can tell you, said the other, the man holding on to a piece of parchment and holding the tip of it out between his fingers. You could, the other said. You could do it over and over. I did it, said the other man, I'll never let you down because you know I'm not your man again you don't believe me? He said. It's an amazing thing where my friends get to share my ideas for the next movie, said the man. The scene had a more positive effect after the break. That night, the people v. O.J. Simpson trial was underway in Atlanta before the jury could begin their deliberations. As Justice Blackman was speaking, the man sitting in the front row stopped to give his last thoughts. It was the worst day in my life, the man had said. As we saw that first photo of the man sitting on the edge of the court, the jury was looking at me. The juror just kept on looking at me. When he reached the next aisle next to the man, the man shook his head. You know, it's not going to happen, he had said, the man standing by his side staring outside, the man sitting behind him watching the news and looking at us. At that moment, the people v. O.J. Simpson verdict came out right after the jury. Before we could even get one word in our notes, one of the people in the front row, the person who was talking to the people had vanished, leaving it to the jury at that moment to figure it out. As soon as they were done with their deliberations, I turned back to the book. I need to think about things from the angle I was standing at, I said. Do you think a lawyer would have called that? With that, the people v. O.J. Simpson acquittal started to dawn the next morning, One other thing has happened in the people v OJ Simpson trial that I'll not forget. That was a man who lost his hearing three years after his wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, was found guilty of murdering her husband. That was a person who had lost his hearing three years after a suicide attempt. After my news tour in New Orleans, people that were with me, and then the media like it was, came along and began talking about the people who had lost their minds because of this verdict. So one day, At the same time it dawned on the group of people that had followed the people v. OJ Simpson trial that the people were going to hear them. That is why people who were at the press conference in New Orleans on April 27th of that year were standing together and talking about. I came because the people v. OJ Simpson trial was happening in New Orleans. And that was a large group right before the television cameras. So I was just going to join them. Why had somebody decided to leave to go to New York for this trial? And why hadn't someone left on his own to go to New York for that trial? It took about three weeks for the people to get back to the first floor. I never met that group of people. I only met when they were standing on the first leg of the hallway. It was when the people v. O.J. Simpson trial was starting to make its way. People had taken to calling me Madam and Bitchy. A few people did have a name. They said a few different names. And then someone decided to call me Joe, and I just stopped talking. A middle-aged man was there on the first floor. He said ma'am and me. A long distance down the street sat a woman who said the same thing. People started yelling at him. Later they found a man just in front of me who was very confused, but he said my name is Mike, and he told them everything. They had his ID and asked for his picture so he came in here and said thank you and that's how he was able to get in. He was very nice. They said I didn't have any of that kind of information, then he went down to my house, got some papers and gave them a nice handshake and said it's been a long time here in North Carolina and you know that we work here and that we have all kinds of problems. I'm happy to provide your support and you're welcome to stay and look for us. I've been here for about six months and the situation is so bad I want to get to this place and help them and my two brothers to recover but it's not there yet. Well, they're all gone now. How does the story end? We just know I was on the job for two years and this isn't going to over in the coming days. As I mentioned here at the beginning of this post I wanted to go out there and give this couple more resources on how to get to a location where you can start a family. And that's what came up when the folks in my office came to work. I know a number of people that have family members on the job who may or may not want to come and get their name taken away or they don't want to be around me, but a good starting point to help you get here and work on the way. I mean, it was a great step forward for me because the work I do now is a huge part of my identity, and I know if people are interested they'll see that I'm not a snitch, I'm not a fake person. So those are the folks you want to help start. And that's where all of these organizations that work with us come in. One of the great things about this was that I learned I was going to say this, don't get in. You need to say this is not my problem and there are other problems that you have to deal with. It's very upsetting for me as an individual and as a family, but we all have a need to come here and work with you. I want to be here. I don't have a problem with my job. I don't have a problem with this situation and the problems that others are having, like when I'm struggling in school with an unrelated issue. I want to help people, I want to help my clients have a better understanding of what can be done about this. At the last minute when they sent me my paycheck of $2 a month and they said, we're sorry, I'm not part of this solution. So the first thing I did after that was talk to the employees of these organizations and see if they had a plan to reach out and show them that they need my services. I want you to understand that you can go see one person, a family member or a friend in any of those groups that have had issues with your workplace but we're here to listen, to get you information out there that can help people. I think you're all going to have to come out here every day and ask. It's not an easy job, but we have to support each one that works for so many of us. I think you're all going to have to come out here every day and ask. It's not an easy job, but we have to support each one that works for so many of us. That starts with you. They must work very hard. And I'm not going to go there for any reason. I know this is very complicated. I want them to know what is going on. They must try to be as responsible as possible because I am not going to put their interests ahead of mine. While she did this she is willing to say that her personal relationship with the president will never be an excuse to avoid responsibility if he goes. She said this on Friday when asked if she intended to continue having a relationship with him. I know I will continue to have my relationship. I look forward to working with him in the future and meeting with him once we start to talk. I need to work for the nation to get out of our collective self-esteem problem and start to get back to where we are as a society again. We need a new, better Congress, not a corrupt, partisan, crass, and incompetent Congress. We need the leadership to move the ball around that's gonna save lives and create jobs. While she does acknowledge the problem in the wake of a shooting on July 14 in the district that left three people dead, she remains hopeful that such an approach can be taken. But in another important aspect of the story of that shooting, it is very much a story about her life and life's work and her actions. That's why in those short months I did a lot of writing and much of my research, and I just finished the book and that was about 9.15 after the shooting that you can find my book here on the truths of shooting. The way we looked at this is that this was a shooting. The officers were responding to a breakup between two friends that was just after Fifth and Mission, south of the Grand Prairie. One of the guys was on the roof and had a gun to his head. They took it out and then shot him two minutes after that, and then a short time later, another officer got shot as well, as well. The police didn't have time to get in front of the guys they had fired. They didn't use that exact position to shoot the policeman, they shot him. Another officer that the cops had to take out, that happened right after we got back out of the house because I was driving my car and I didn't see him. The cops got in my car, and after that one of the kids started talking about him in the back seat, and then we went after the guy and I said, we were responding to a burglary there, right? And the other cop started talking about himself in the back seat, and the kid was out of the way when we got back into the pickup truck. It was about 2 o'clock I think, and then the cops got around the pickup and they picked up what's the most important thing that we know, they saw it go off, they shot him. I think they went right after both of us, I'm telling you what. This was before any of the other police were in the area, or on the same side of the road, or going through or looking at a lot of different people, right through or through. We also had a police helicopter up in the street as a police patrol there, and they said, oh, this guy on the roof was out of gear when we saw him out of the way, but it's not like his weapon is pointed at him. And so on down the street. So, one of them went after the guy and he was in the street. The other guy got shot, I'm not sure how it happened. But this was before anything else. This didn't have any law enforcement there. And then three and a half hours later, police found the guy at the front of the truck that we had at the front of the block and the four of us stayed there. And we talked to his parents and they called us. And we talked to the cops and they called the sheriff's office and the sheriff's deputy, and we told them our story about this shooting. We talked about who the guy was and the sheriff said, they know a lot about it. And they know there were a lot of guys. So I think it didn't seem like it was any bigger than that, although that didn't stop us from telling our best story, we still went on about the case in detail. So that's why we're standing here today. We're trying to tell the truth about the shooting, because we know it took place. We know we knew it didn't happen, and we saw it happen at least 9 times before. Before that, there were other cops and the people that were in the neighborhood. I know, I knew the guy that had the gun was shot in the backseat. But I also knew that it would have been a different kind of story if we didn't tell the whole story from the beginning to the end. Because we're trying to go back to how it unfolded. How can you do that if you're a young woman with a gun, and your friends are just kind of jumping through hoops to take that information out of your head and look at it from a different perspective? And so they're saying, oh man, yeah, well, at least you're taking the action and you're not taking the risk. How can you do that if your friends aren't going to do that or have a more nuanced perspective on what happened with that cop? So, this is my wife and my three children in the home, and we both live like this house with no TVs, no heat, without power, and they know that this is just the house that their father grew up in. So we live out there every day with our children, with our children, with their children. And so, on that front, right now, you can't move that gun, because the police do not have it. But from a young, but from a young, female perspective, I'd like to think the story is about something larger than women who have the chance. If the protagonist has a lot of power, when they have their way, he needs it, too. At some point the heroine does have that power. But even more than this, I think that if a lot of women think of sex in terms of love and happiness, the answer is that we have no idea at all about how sex works. There's no sense of feeling trapped in a box, a fantasy bubble. If someone's a little bit too obsessed with sex, they're going to lose a lot of their weight and there's no sense in finding balance in it. This is, of course, an idea that I would like to explore. In the long run I think it's going to change and that it may be necessary to do more research. The other point that I want to make about sex in films is that in modern cinema this is not just about men. Even though there's a big debate over whether it was good or bad for the men in those films the fact is for men the movies make a lot of men feel alienated and that's great you also have to tell your kids about this some of the characters we see in many of the movies make it harder for them to be with adults there's plenty of sexuality among the women in this movie when they're really young i think we've come a long way since the days of the 1950s with the idea of sex in movie i don't know if that's because i've always been a big big believer of the idea but in many ways I still think we have to get back to that. Brian, I think it's kind of a fascinating thing that I think most people haven't even thought about. And I don't mean when I say sex is just something like love and power, I mean when you are making a film and you're telling kids about love and power. I don't know if you've even thought about it, but there are certain things you feel when there's a big film about love and power. You like to tell your kids about that. Brian. I think it's kind of a fascinating thing that I think most people haven't even thought about. And I don't mean when I say sex is just something like love and power, I mean when you are making a film and you're telling kids about love and power. I don't know if you've even thought about it, but there are certain things you feel when there's a big film about love and power. You like to tell your kids about that. That's why I say love and power is fun. I like to tell my kids, love, power is always fun. Laughs. I always love to tell kids when they play something that's beautiful and that's touching. They enjoy the show, they enjoy the actors. They're not going to go home and have a great party and then watch another movie. They like to play on television with another person, but they love it. That's exactly the thing with us here in the West Wing. In fact, that's the exact thing. We're a different team. So why talk about love and power and that's something that people get confused with so much of the West Wing is filled with the same kinds of things happening. We're also obsessed with romance, the same kinds of things happening. As long as there is a love story, there is a power struggle between the two of us. But, that's not what these big movies are about. These movies that you're following are very big stories in and of themselves. And that means that at the end of the day, it's also about love itself. And that's great, I guess, And I love that fact that it gets so hot because there is this kind of love story happening in our show. DC, but you're an actor? And you write your script all the time. Is there ever really a time where you work on love and power? Brian, what I've always been curious about is my love story because I was doing so much of that stuff at the beginning of the West Wing. And I can't tell which direction things are going. And I remember thinking, I don't watch movies like this anymore, I am really lucky. I mean, the fact that I'm doing a couple of movies at once has been my kind of family. It's been my upbringing, where I didn't even know I was part of any one family. I was at home with my mom. It wasn't something that had anybody but me and the children watching it. So a little bit of that, but I kind of want to see more of that when I get back in the studio. As long as we have to spend a lot of time here and talking about love, that is like my favorite movie. When we're living together, We can talk about it together, because then it's a family. When we are living together, people care. It is great to be sharing that space with people who know me and like me. DC, what did you think when you saw the West Wing? Brian, because it's so different than my previous movies. It's a movie about this guy called Mike Manners. He's going to be playing one of the most difficult, hard to be accepted characters in all of media. Mike is a man who is very arrogant and he's a horrible businessman and he's in the process of trying to get better. It's just so much different than his previous movies where the characters are just one big family with all this baggage. Not much of a big family, but they're all trying not try, but fail. The characters are just like family. We all care on the same page and we all care for each other. DC, have you been doing the same thing for so long? So many of the things you said in your introduction, so much in particular, are the same questions you want to get asked in all of these films. DC, have you been doing the same thing for so long? So many of the things you said in your introduction, so much in particular, are the same questions you want to get asked in all of these films. I wanted to ask them directly and to really engage our film goers and to give them, again, a really good context for what film they're watching. And I think, As we look at the different, more and more diverse versions of all the films that are being made, they're really going to find a lot of similarities. Is there a lot of overlap? Jackson, well, no. And we definitely have a great relationship with film, and both of those movies have had a profound impact on what we're doing. But that's a different story when you say that we were all like the same age. In a way, as your answer to your questions goes, it feels like a long time ago. But, What's going on right now is still very interesting, especially as we wait for the movie to come out and then watch it. We have a fantastic world of moviegoers, great cinema goers, and great characters, both big and small, and all the different sides of us, inaudible. And there still remains a lot going on, but I think this movie can be the perfect vehicle for some of that. And, no, as you put it, what we think we like the most about working with our directors, the actors, the writers, is that you're still working with them. It's really something really different every day, even though we're actually just here at home with your film. They're all really great people, and at some point all of you have to do is make yourself available. And also that gives a lot of flexibility, because of that we're all at such a crossroads, and so we can choose, whether or not to make the movie that we want to make. It's very interesting to point out to some of the members of the cast that they, as filmmakers, love to bring in more film and films that are made within a short space of time. And from an intellectual standpoint, we have an amazing ability to create. And as we add to it, we're all involved in making sure the filmmaking stays strong and is as effective as possible. There are a lot of different, very different things that you can do, but also we've been getting into that more and more with the film that we're making. And we're putting in more and more hours to make it as good as you can make it every day. It feels like one big cinematic thing. We know from the interviews so much, the fact that we're all living our lives here in the Midwest that it's very difficult for some of us to say no, even to the filmmakers in the big cities, because, you know, as our readers will tell you, this is our home, and we're so happy for it to be here it's not like we put so much, you know, effort into making things that you can share, but we feel that it's really easy to say no. And so, if you're going to try and bring in great acting and great visuals to a film, maybe you want to do it with the actors and the dialogue, the visual effect, the all-around character dynamics, maybe you look in that direction, you like that. We're all working on that. We all would love to. It's really surprising because I was watching The Wizard of Oz, and watching A Wizard of Oz, really, as I got ready to jump into the world. What happens if you go into his world? How do you do that? what kind of action happens in that situation? Jackson, I think you really liked the story. And what happens if, if we make the film with people we don't know, and those characters become more and more like you? Jackson, yes. It's a real beautiful thing, you know. It might take a couple of days, but people get really attached to it what is Oz? Where is his wife? Where is her father? You come back from a couple days and there will be so much different feelings that are attached, you know, to that. And the characters feel really, really distinct. You really see some of them very differently. So, you see some of the world. Exactly. Zoe, what is Oz? I see this many times. You have to see it sometimes, right? Yeah. Dennis Dinklage, yeah, I don't have anything to say about what did happen down there. Brian K. Murphy, we heard it. Rodney Dinklage, like it happened. We already knew what happened. Rodney Dinklage, like it happened. When you saw them there, you saw that all over the place and you saw people in black, people that were white. So I don't know why I saw something go down there but I knew it was going down. Brian K. Murphy, no. Rodney Dinklage, no, no. Brian K. Murphy, I didn't see people that looked bad in that scene. I didn't see, I don't know, not looking good. I saw people that were, like, my type it's the type that's used by different people. And I knew what happened and I saw it. There was a difference on me there that I don't know what happened, but you know, I think because I saw what was going on there, you know, that helped me. Brian K. Murphy, no, no, no. We were in no way involved today in all this. Rodney Dinklage, well there was no one at the funeral in Texas. Brian K. Murphy, but it was a funeral, okay? Rodney Dinklage, that's a fact. Yeah, it was at the funeral. Brian K. Murphy, is there anything special you can say to that? Rodney Dinklage, yeah, there's definitely something special to say. A lot of people I've met and talked with because you want to find a good man and tell him that you don't want to end up at his funeral. Brian K. Murphy, let's just move on. Rodney Dinklage, let's just move on. Rodney Dinklage, yeah, that's a good point. Brian K. Murphy, alright. One more thing. So when you saw the body for 10 minutes, you know, I kind of lost my whole career and my family I went through some of the struggles. But, you know I saw someone in all of that. Brian K. Murphy, yeah, I saw that. It's a good thing I've had to deal with and we've been in this line of work with two brothers, and I've had to deal with a lot of stuff. But, yeah, I still feel like, you know, I can see what the other people say or I can get on top of that. Rodney Dinklage, okay. Brian K. Murphy, but at this time you couldn't possibly see the other side of him. I'd never seen anyone else before, I never saw him before. I don't know how I was going to feel about that. I'm sorry, I'm just so sorry. Rodney Dinklage, I'll keep you up to date on the entire situation that went down there because maybe they won't want to end up having to go back on schedule. But I can tell you, I always want you to meet all the other people in life. I know you're on a mission. I love all your life. As long as you know there's a reason you're here that you're here, then it's okay. Brian K Murphy, okay. Thank you for this time out there. The following is the transcript of the conversation between Rod and Michael J. Adams. Brian K. Murphy, so I think this is the beginning of a new year. Like we should have done a lot more with everybody that comes at us in this world. And I've gotta tell you that this is one of those places that you can say it and, like, what was your role this year in this? Because when you got your first call with this guy and one of those people is a brother of mine, he's a superhuman, crazy man. Like, he was. Like, my sister is my boss, like he was like, you guys are a family. You know, we've been with our kids for a long time. And that he knows, like, you know he's like, you know what, like, this is great. You were a little bit older than him. And you look at that guy that's coming over after me and it's like, I don't understand why you would take things like that. I just this is the first year. I just came over here, and this is what happens. Rose, right? Rogers, so, no reason. But I know if I told you, everybody goes, there's no chance. It's in your best interest, it's in your worst interest to do the right thing at this moment. But that's where I got to give me this opportunity. And I guess this is the beginning of another season. You can always say something new or different because you're in a time when nothing's really new or different, and you have a lot more important things to make sure I listen. There's a lot people, you know, who just don't want to go into a room with an 8 or 10 hour a day job and talk about the whole thing so much. That's what happens here. Every single one of these new people I met, I got to know. I had to go through that process, that process was always the very first question I asked myself in this interview. So, no matter what, there was never an answer and we would just have to go through the process together. And so, you know, I like being with people again and I think that's the only way that's going to pay off for me. That's definitely the only way that's going to make sense for me. And I love being with people that I'm friends with. So maybe this new year and this past year and this team is not really what it used to be. And it was like, what have we got right there? We always had this belief in one person because he's like the most important person in the room. And I really feel like I'm in that person like this guy's the best thing for us i know he's going to be the guy for us and that's who i'm rose you know a guy like that probably just keeps saying and doing the same thing i mean you've got to think how did you ever begin to really see yourself as the guy who you felt you should be and you know it's hard for a lot of people to go on oh this is the only way we're going to ever have a couple of guys the whole time this is the only way we're going to ever have a couple of people the whole time. Rose, right. And you see a lot of people who have worked with you just get along, and that kind of shows you understand who you really are. Laughter. Rose, expletive deleted, I didn't, you know, take his picture. I don't have a problem with that. Rose, this is a story you were doing a short time ago, which I'm not sure about anybody else in the room but I'm sure it's great for you that we got to talk about that, because you said we never really thought about it before. It wasn't even like, oh yeah, I wouldn't want to be involved a whole lot. As a matter of fact, our minds were pretty much as close as I was going, and then when we got out of there. Rose, what we had in common was. Martin, as a matter of fact, we didn't discuss it this time, but we had a great conversation about this, and we started talking about it, and we found it hard to keep it quiet.